I'll be reading this uh, this morning in Yoruba language from Nigeria. Matthew, it will Matthew chapter. I'm going to say English chapter 1, verse 18 to 25. B, I shall be Jason Christie, ni you, ni akoko, ti adeun, igbeya wo ti igbari maria, iyare, ati josefu, shubon, ki wonto pade, ari lorun, lati owo emimimo, Nintori Josephu Okore Tishe Lo Otito Oni Oki Ti Dutu Nigba Nigbagba Oni Eron Lati Ko Oseleni Ikoko Shubon Nigba Ti Orore Nitan Angeli Oluwao Sini Oju ala Owikwe Josephu Omo Davidi Mafon ya Latifi Maria She Ayare Nitori Onyuti Owa Ninure Lati Owo Emimi Moni Oun Sibi Omo Kuri Iwo Iwo Shi Oun si oun yo si bi omo kunrin iwo iwo yi pe oruko re ni Jesu nitori ohun ni yo gba awon eniyan lako ko se won gbogbo ikan won yi sise lati mu oro oluwa se Eyiti lati emi mimo woli. Wanda ko wada eko yo lorun yese omo korun omo korun kan yo shikba oru kore ni Emanueli. Eyiti tumo o lorun wa pelu wa. Lagba ti Jesu, Josephu, ti lomu orun re, on she gege bi angeli, oluwa shekba jefun, omu maria wa si ile ni iyawo, shubon, on komo titi, ti bi omo kunrin, omo kunrin o ti orun, oru kore ni Jesu. The word of the Lord. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Rosemary. We love, we know, you know, it's just more like we sing in Spanish around here. We sing songs that are maybe gospel songs. We are a diverse community here at Harbor, and so we like to celebrate that. Um, so that's why we do things like this, because also, I don't think all the worship in heaven will be in English. So we need to practice now so we can participate more easily then. Uh, but thank you, thank you, Rosemary, for sharing your language with us. <laughs> so uh, my husband Jeremy has a poster hanging in his office at our home. It looks like this. Uh, if you can't read that, it says, Save lives, do crimes. 
Save lives, do crimes. More than once, I have had a Zoom call in Jeremy's office, and someone has seen that interesting piece of artwork behind me and said, save lives, do crimes, question mark? <laughs> so this poster is an image of a Swedish businessman and diplomat named Raoul Wallenberg. Raoul Wallenberg worked in German-occupied Hungary during World War II. He is credited with saving the lives of thousands of Jews during the Nazi effort to deport them to death camps from Hungary. There's a great story about Wallenberg intercepting a train that was loading up Jewish people heading for Auschwitz. He apparently climbed up on the roof of the train and was handing out Swedish protective passports to everybody through whatever doors and windows had not been closed yet. All of this while being shot at. And then he demanded that everyone with a Swedish passport be released to him because they were a Swedish citizen and they would be in big trouble if they took these Swedish citizens with them on the train. He also bought up tons of buildings in Budapest and he claimed them as Swedish territory. He put Swedish flags on them and signs that said things like the Swedish Library, the Swedish uh, Institute of Research, uh, these Swedish buildings with full diplomatic immunity. Uh, ended up housing around 10,000 people during World War II. A lot of what Raoul Wallenberg did was not strictly legal. A lot of fraud, things like that. But God worked through this brave man to save thousands of lives. So the poster exhorts us, be like Raoul Wallenberg. Save lives, do crimes. Sometimes the way God works is not how we expect it to be. Sometimes the way God works is not even what we think the right way to do it would be. That's what we saw in, in the reading that Rosemary just did for us. See, today begins, as we've said, the church season of Advent. The word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which just means arrival. And so we are going back to the beginning of Matthew to read about the Advent of Jesus, his arrival on earth as a baby. And Jesus' birth, though the Messiah had been longed for and expected, his birth came about in a way that was not what people imagined. You'll notice that in Matthew's telling of this birth of Jesus story, Mary is almost absent from the story. Every verb involving her is passive. She has no initiative in this telling of the birth narrative. And there's a reason for this. Remember, Matthew's audience is mainly Jewish. We've said, we've been studying the book of Matthew since September. We're going through the whole book of Matthew over the school year. So we skipped these birth narratives, and now we're coming back to them. When we started our study on Matthew, we said Matthew had two main purposes in the writing of his gospel. He said, first, he wanted to convince his Jewish audience that Jesus really was the continuation of God's story. Jesus was the Messiah that the Jewish people had been longing for for centuries. And the second thing Matthew wants to do is he wants to teach people how to live as a disciple of Jesus. And he's doing both of those things in this narrative through the story of Joseph. Matthew's focus on Joseph is intended to demonstrate how Jesus' legal adoption of Joseph, by Joseph fulfills Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. And Matthew's focus on Joseph is intended to be a model of righteous obedience that disciples of Jesus are to live in, especially when God's plan doesn't seem like the right way to do it. 
So let's first talk about this first goal of Matthew's. Let's talk about how Joseph's participation in this whole thing is critical for Matthew's goal of demonstrating that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. So when we first started our study of Matthew back in September, we started with the genealogy that's the first half of chapter 1. We talked about how Matthew took great pains to connect Jesus back to the story of what God had been up to in the people of Israel all along. He has Jesus descending from Abraham, the great patriarch of the the Jewish faith. He ties Jesus back to the King David, whose line the people were expectantly waiting to be restored to its former glory. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is the true son of David. He wants us to see that Jesus is the blessing that God promised would come through the people of Abraham's family. There's just one problem. Uh, Mary will be Jesus' like only biological parent. But did you notice which one of them is listed as the descendant of the king of David and of Abraham? It's in verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. It's through Joseph that Jesus would be legally said to be in the line of David. Matthew emphasizes this when the angel addresses Joseph with that title in verse 20, Joseph, son of David. Matthew is showing us how God secured Jesus' legal status of David's son through Joseph. In addition, at that time, the father named the child. That's why the angel gives Joseph instructions about what to name the child and call him Jesus. The name Jesus by the way, is the Aramaic rendering of the Hebrew word Yeshua, from which we also get the name Joshua. The name Yeshua means the Lord saves. The Lord saves. This child was to be named the Lord saves. His name is a declaration of his vocation. Through this child, people will experience God's salvation. Matthew declares, this child is God. There's been lots of babies named Yeshua, but this one is actually the God who came to save in the flesh. That's why he says this child will save his people from their sins. That's also why Matthew's goal of tying this back to to Jewish prophecy, that's why he refers back to the book of Isaiah in uh, chapter 1, verse 23. He says the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That prophecy was first spoken through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, if you want to look it up. In that context, when the book of Isaiah was written, when those verses were written, the people of Judah were under attack. And God had said, I will save you. Ask me for a sign, and I will show you that I am going to save you. But the king said he would not test God. He would not ask for a sign, even though God had invited him to. And so Isaiah says, fine. In Isaiah 7, 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Isaiah goes on to say, before that child that's going to be born is even old enough to know right from wrong, these enemies that are coming against you, these enemies that you're terrified of, they're going to be destroyed by someone else. Now, In the context of the book of Isaiah, the young woman to whom the prophecy probably referred was Isaiah's wife. Right after this, Isaiah's wife became pregnant with a child, and within a few years, before that child was very old, the enemies were indeed destroyed. See, the Hebrew version 
of Isaiah 7:14, that word that's translated virgin in our Bibles can also just mean a young woman. So in the Old Testament, they're clearly kind of meaning young woman. But the Greek translation, which Matthew would have known, translated that word that unequivocally means virgin. So they translated that word to mean virgin. Not young woman and virgin, but only virgin. And it's the Greek version that Matthew quotes here because he wants to make a point. He wants to make a point. Listen, God did something amazing back in Isaiah's time, but holy cow, is he going to do something even more amazing now? In the context of Isaiah, God delivered his people and he is going to deliver us now the same way. But this is a much more miraculous, a much more long-lasting kind of salvation than in the days of Isaiah. This is what God does. God rescues. God forgives. And in Jesus, Matthew's saying, we have a greater salvation than what Isaiah experienced. In Isaiah's day, the people were saved from a, a terrifying army. But in Jesus, we are saved from the very power of sin. In Isaiah's day, the young woman, the the child that the young woman bore was a sign that God was with the people. But in Jesus, God is literally one of us. He has come to be with his people. So Matthew's telling us Joseph's side of the story because what Joseph did made the way for Jesus to fulfill messianic expectations. If Joseph had divorced Mary, even quietly, Jesus would not have been legally in the line of David as the Messiah was supposed to be because legal heritage was through the father. And if Joseph had divorced Mary, probably her dad would have named the baby. And I don't know, but if your teenage daughter comes home and says, I'm pregnant, I swear, I'm a virgin still, and the angel said we should name him Jesus. I don't know. maybe, Maybe her dad wouldn't have listened and named the baby Jesus. I don't know. But because Joseph married Mary, he legally adopted Jesus as his own son. Jesus was legally an heir of King David. He was given the name Jesus. And verse 25 has that interesting comment that Joseph abstained from sex with Mary until they were together, until, until after Jesus was born. That's probably Matthew's way of reinforcing the miracle of what's happening here, that she was still a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus. Joseph's obedient participation ensured that the birth of the Messiah happened in alignment with some of what the people had been taught through the prophets. That's one reason that Matthew focuses on uh, Joseph here. The other reason Matthew focuses on Joseph in Jesus' birth story is to give us an example of obedient discipleship. Particularly, right, Joseph gives us a beautiful example of discipleship when God works in ways we do not expect. These verses tell the story of Jesus' birth from Joseph's perspective. Joseph was pledged to be married to a young woman named Mary. And before they get married, it turns out she's pregnant. And Joseph has to decide what to do. Now, betrothal in first century Judaism is not the same as engagement today, okay? In our time, engaged couples are still legally single. If your relationship ends, it's just called a breakup. But in first century Judaism, the betrothal, this promise to be married, was a binding agreement. Ending things required a legal divorce. If the man died, the woman was considered a widow. So Joseph and Mary were legally committed to each other. They just hadn't had their wedding yet and started to live together yet. 
Now, in that time, marriage also was generally arranged by the family. So we don't know if Mary and Joseph even knew each other that well. Maybe their friends were, their parents were acquaintances with each other, but probably if Joseph heard that Mary was pregnant, if he didn't know her that well, he would assume it was the result of infidelity. Even if he heard her story of seeing an angel, if I'm Joseph, that's a hard sell. Now, at this point in the story, at the beginning of this story, we, the reader, know that Mary's pregnant through the Holy Spirit because the text says it, but Joseph doesn't. Verse 19 says, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. And Joseph must have been feeling a lot. (laughs) Betrayal, anger, disappointment. These verses say Joseph is a faithful man. He was someone who tried his best to follow God's law and to do what it says. If I'm Joseph, I would have felt deep disappointment in this situation. He had obeyed God. He had followed the law, and now his wife-to-be is pregnant. The marriage contract was broken. There would be shame for him and his family. Joseph is described as a faithful Jewish man. He knows God's law, and he wants to follow it. And in Jewish law at that time, if your wife committed adultery, you divorced her. That was just what you did. That was, in fact, the righteous thing to do. In practice, it was almost required. In fact, Roman law at that time treated a husband who didn't divorce an adulterous wife as though he were exploiting her for prostitution. If Joseph didn't divorce Mary, he would bring shame on his family and himself and probably any future children they would have. Because if he stayed with her, other people would assume he was the father and that he'd slept with her before they were married, which just was not done. And he would always know he wasn't the father. And so he would be dooming his future children to have a mother who was an adulteress. Joseph's reputation was at stake. His faithfulness and his practice of God's law were all at stake. And he's described as merciful, Despite his own pain, despite the disappointment he must have felt, he didn't want Mary to be publicly disgraced. So verse 19 tells us that he was weighing all his options, and he chose what he felt was the most merciful way to do justice, a quiet divorce. At this time, there were basically two options for divorce, a public trial and a private serving of papers in the presence of two witnesses. A private divorce was allowed in the case of adultery as long as there were two witnesses present. This dissolved the marriage quickly and quietly. A public trial, on the other hand, would allow for Joseph to make his case that Mary had been unfaithful, which would have been easy to prove because she was pregnant, and he said it wasn't his. So if the courts found that she had been unfaithful, he would have recovered all the money he'd paid as the bride price to her parents, and he would have probably been able to keep the dowry. A public trial was much more economically advantageous for Joseph. Now, although we read in Deuteronomy that the prescribed uh, penalty for adultery is death, in most cases, rabbis avoided this kind of harsh punishment. And by this time, Israel was occupied by Rome, who took away their uh, ability to dole out death sentences. This is why Jesus has to go see Pilate before he can be sentenced to death. 
So it's not likely death was on the table for Mary, but divorce is going to be bad for her, however it happened. See, a premarital pregnancy and a divorce would have certainly ruined her chances to ever be married, which for a woman in a male-dominated society was economically devastating. She would be dependent on her father the rest of his life and then hope that maybe one of her brothers would take her in after her father's death. And she would live in lifelong shame in a society that had strict ideas about what it meant to be a good woman. So even Joseph's merciful choice would have left Mary's life ruined. But he felt like it was his only option. And to be clear, Matthew does not paint Joseph as making a bad decision here. Back then, it was clear to people that though God hated divorce, sometimes it was the only thing to do. I mention that because I know some of us have experienced divorce. This passage is not about laying guilt on people about divorce. This passage actually demonstrates the opposite, that there's a belief for a long time among God's people that sometimes allowing divorce is the most merciful thing to do. The point Matthew is making in this situation is that divorce looked like the right thing to do. The right thing to do. Divorce seemed to this faithful man of God as the righteous path. And no rabbi would have argued with him about that. So Joseph went to bed planning to enact a private divorce. And then an angel showed up. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. The angel tells him first, the baby in Mary's womb is not the result of infidelity. This baby is not the result of sin. This baby is divinely conceived. This baby is a miracle from the Holy Spirit. The angel relieves Joseph of the shame he would have felt. He would have carried. The angel tells Joseph the truth about Mary's situation, and he takes this heavy burden off of Joseph's shoulders. Oh, people will still talk, but Joseph will be able to hold his head high because he knows that he and Mary have done what God wanted. He knows the truth now. And in giving Joseph this crucial piece of information, what a gift to Mary. What a merciful gift to Mary. She will be spared the public shame of being a divorced woman with a baby born out of wedlock. She will be spared the difficult economic reality that would have been hers. What a merciful gift of God on her behalf that God sent an angel to make sure Joseph knew the truth. So the angel tells Joseph what's really going on, and then he gives him just two quick jobs. <laughs> two things you needed to do. Take Mary home as your wife, Name the baby Jesus. I love it. He just lays it right out for him. He's like, Joseph, I need two things. Marry her. Name the baby Jesus. Got it? Take her home. Bring her into your home as, as your wife. Act like nothing's changed even though she's pregnant because you now know she was not unfaithful. Get married. And then when the time comes for the baby to be born, name the baby Jesus. Remember, it's the father's legal responsibility to name the children. So Joseph is told what to name Jesus. And in this way, he is given the opportunity in Matthew's gospel to be the first person to declare the truth about who Jesus is. He is the long-awaited Savior of the world. And verses 24 and 25 tell us what Joseph did. When Joseph woke up, 
He did what the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. So Joseph received instructions from God, and he did what God said. This is exactly what we've been saying, isn't it, about discipleship, about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Disciples of Jesus do what God says. They hear God's word and put it into practice. Joseph is Matthew's first example of what it looks like to live as an obedient disciple. Joseph obeyed God's word because he valued obedience more than his reputation. Joseph obeyed because he trusted God, even when God was working in a way that seemed outside of what his culture deemed appropriate. Matthew, in the rest of his book, will return several times to this idea about uh, doing God's will, even when it seems at odds with following the letter of God's law. Matthew will emphasize that being truly righteous means wanting God's kingdom more than anything else, not just following rules so we look righteous. In Matthew, Jesus will be questioned about his adherence to the law. Jesus will heal on the Sabbath. Jesus will eat with people who are unclean. We've just spent the last several weeks in the Sermon on the Mount, so we know that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is reinterpreting God's law to help people see that God's law is about more mercy, more transformation, more people invited in to the table. Jesus wants to show people that God's law was never intended to be an end in itself. It was a tool given to help people experience more of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And Joseph is the first person in Matthew's gospel to get it. Joseph chooses to do what God says instead of what people thought was right. He chose God's will instead of his culture's norms. And this is what Matthew wants his listeners to do as well. Matthew says, big idea, disciples of Jesus do what God wants, even if it puts us at odds with what other people consider acceptable. Disciples of Jesus do what God wants, even when what God wants seems outside the bounds of what our community might normally do. This is what people like Raoul Wallenberg concluded during World War II. Normally, breaking the law is not something people of God do. But millions of people were being murdered. Listen, God may not be calling you to stand on the roof of a train and be shot at while you hand out passports. Most of us probably won't have that experience. But he might be calling you to something that is not what you expected that is outside of the norms you've come to expect of your Christian faith. That's because just like in Joseph's day, we have a really hard time seeing how the normal way to do things in our Christian culture is so influenced by our cultural location and sometimes more influenced by our cultural location really than God's word just because it's where we live. It's what we know. Listen, I've experienced this in my own journey. I grew up in a church that had very clear rules and traditions about the roles of men and women in the church. Men were supposed to be the leaders, and there are Bible verses that say that. I never doubted it. And then God called me to be a leader in the church. <laughs> he gave me gifts. And it took me a long time in ministry to finally come to peace with the reality that maybe 
my ideas of the roles of men and women were more influenced by my church culture than by God's desire to come to peace following the leading that God had been putting on my heart since I was a child, to realize that God was calling me to be the pastor of a church. I never expected I'd be a pastor. I thought I'd marry one, maybe. (laughs) But God stretched me outside of what my church culture believed was acceptable, and he asked me to obey, even if it wasn't what I expected, even if it wasn't what other people thought was best. And Harbor, I want God's will. I want to do what God wants me to do. I, I want his plan. I want his kingdom. And I want all that more than I want the approval of other people. And so here I am. There are still people who think I shouldn't be a pastor. But I'm not doing this for them. I'm doing this because it's what God asked me to do. And I said yes. So Matthew is telling us Joseph's story to underscore again that Jesus is the Messiah who came to save us from our sins. And he tells the story of Joseph to show us an example of what it looks like to be an obedient disciple. So, what's God saying to you about all this this morning? Have you come to believe that Jesus is the only one who can save you? Is he inviting you to believe the truth of who he is? That he is Emmanuel, God with us. That he is the only one who saves. Listen, there is nothing Jesus can't rescue you from. There is nothing Jesus can't forgive. There is no dark story in your life that Jesus cannot redeem and turn into something beautiful. There's just not It's his very name. He is the one who saves. So if that's you this morning and you're recognizing you need him, you need his forgiveness, you need his rescue, you need his presence next to you in your life, tell him that this morning and listen for what he says. Or is there maybe some place in your life where God is asking you to take a brave step outside of what is considered considered normal and follow him? Is he challenging you What do you want more? Do you want my kingdom or do you want other people to approve of you? Do you want to look like a good Christian or do you want to obey me? So let's just take these next few moments. Each week we spend time just kind of sitting quietly to listen to what God is saying to us. The Holy Spirit is working in each of us, bringing to each of us what we need to hear this morning. So we're just going to take some time to listen to what God wants to say to us this morning. And then when you're ready, you can come forward and you can take communion. Here at Harbor, communion is for anybody who wants Jesus. You don't have to be a member of our church or anything like that. Communion at Harbor is for everyone who wants Jesus, everyone who wants what he offered when he died for us, when he offered up his body and his blood to be broken and shed to forgive us for our sins. When we take communion, we declare our allegiance to Jesus, the one who saves. We recall his death on our behalf and we commit ourselves to the life of an obedient disciple. So let's pray, and when you're ready, come up and take communion. God, we are so thankful that you don't always work the way we expect, because we all in this room have stories of how our lives did not turn out the way we thought they might, but we're so glad 
that you did what you did. God, we want to be brave like Joseph. We want to be obedient like him. We want to follow you even if it seems maybe outside of what we expected. And we want to follow you because we know that your way is best. (laughs) We know that you love us. We know you love us because you sent your son, God Almighty, who spoke and then the universe existed. You made yourself small enough to fit into the fragile body of a human. That is how much you love us. That is how much you want to, to be with us. That is how much you wanted to repair the damage that our sin, our choice, made. So God, this morning, will you call us to yourself again? Will you speak to us just what we need to hear? And will you remind us of the forgiveness and grace that is freely available through Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.